0: Hey, Kevin here, and this week on Philly Who, we are revisiting the first interview that I ever conducted in my life. Today, we are sharing the story of Alex Scott, who is the girl who founded Alex's Lemonade Stand, one of the country's largest foundations that fights childhood cancer. Alex Scott founded this organization before she was 10 years old, and as you're about to hear, she managed to impact the world more in her less than a decade of life than most of us ever will. It's an incredible story that many people aren't aware is a Philly story. And just warning you, you might want to have some tissues nearby because this one is a tearjerker. So please, let's celebrate the life of Alex Scott as we hear from her mother, Liz Scott, who rejoins us today on this episode of Philly Who from 2018, telling the story of Alex Scott. So many of you have probably heard of Alex's Lemonade Stand. They're very active, especially in the Philadelphia area, and they raise a ton of money every year for the research for treatment of and transportation to the treatment of childhood cancer for different families across the country. But not too many people know the origin story. It all started with Alex Scott when she was four years old and decided to hold a lemonade stand to give the money to her doctors to help other kids like her with cancer. But, of course, Alex's story begins with Jay and Liz, her parents. Jay and Liz were high school sweethearts who wound up going to the University of Connecticut together and they actually got a head start on Alex in selling beverages. But at first, it wasn't lemonade. It was actually
1: coffee. Yeah. So, we had the coffee shop. It was called the Java Joint. It was such a cool business. I would do that again. Yeah, It was awesome. It's a lot more competition now, though. Yeah. Uh, we only sold coffee. We didn't sell food. People would wait in line, 20 people deep to get this. And my husband has such a great memory that he would know like four, five, six people back what was coming. Wow. So, once they got up, they knew they would have their drink ready. ready. Yeah. Um, but we... So when Alex was not quite one year old, so our older son was two and she was almost one, she was diagnosed with neuroblastoma. And I mean, as anybody would say, who's had a child diagnosed with cancer or any, you know, life-threatening disease, our whole entire life just turned upside down from that point on um, in, you know, pretty significant ways. So
0: at what point did the family relocate from Connecticut to Philadelphia?
1: So she started, you know, when, when your ch- child is diagnosed with cancer, there's a protocol, hopefully, meaning there's a roadmap to a cure for them. She immediately went into chemo- the chemotherapies that they thought would cure her and they would work for a little bit and they would stop working. So this went on for three years. She had six major surgeries to remove these tumors that were threatening her. She had months and months of chemotherapy. She had radiation therapy after three years of all that. Not only was it continuing to persist, but it had metastasized to her bones. So now she was having pain from it being in her bones. And her prognosis literally went to almost 0% chance of surviving at that point. So we were living in West Hartford, Connecticut. We had traveled to Boston We had traveled to New York over the years for second and third opinions from day one, really. And they had never exactly agreed on what the next step was. Now they all said, take her home, give her time away from the hospital, enjoy her last days that she has. So we were devastated. On the other hand, you know, she was, she had just learned how to walk, stand up on her own and walk. She, other than the pain, she was, had a good life. So when she was feeling good, she was playful, she was happy. It just didn't seem like it was time to stop treating her. I didn't feel that we had tried enough. And we ended up contacting the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, her doctor there, Dr. John Maris, because another doctor had told us, you might want to talk to him, he's got some new things going on there. And he recommended a experimental treatment for her. And he was honest with us in terms of saying, I'm not going to tell you I can cure her, but I think I can give her more time. I think I can relieve her pain and I think she can have some quality of life. So that's really why we started coming to Philadelphia for that hope to just make her feel better. And in the back of your mind, do you think maybe this brand new treatment will be the thing?
0: It'll be the thing that cures her.
1: Yeah, exactly. So we came to Philadelphia for the first time. In 1999, the end of 99, she was almost four years old. So we got to the Children's Hospital. She was admitted. And this treatment, they still do it. She was actually the second child to receive it.
0: And they're still doing it today. Uh huh. Wow. It's pretty
1: standard. Uh, it's called MIBG therapy. And it's a radioactive iodine that targets neuroblastoma, eats it up. So it's a targeted therapy, which back then was much more unusual than it is now. And but she was radioactive. So her body was processing this radiation and she was emitting radiation. So she had to essentially be in a lead lined room. We weren't allowed to spend a whole lot of time in there with her. So you would think she would come out a bit traumatized, but she came out all smiles three days after she went in and she said that treatment worked. I feel better. Let's go shopping for a Christmas dress. (laughs) So that was, that's where that, Emotion came in because we went down wondering if we were doing the right thing, you know, thinking, should we just be letting her be home? Because it's pretty traumatic going to a new hospital and this treatment was pretty traumatic. But to hear her say that worked
0: was just amazing. You must have felt jubilant.
1: Yeah, we drove home feeling a completely different mindset and just so full of hope that there was more to be done and just happy that she wasn't in pain anymore. And that really led us down the road of four and a half years of experimental treatments. Three years of that were the best years she had because some of them really worked well for her. And it planted the idea in her mind, I think, because of the timing of it, that there was more to be done to help find a cure.
0: Right. So is that when she started bugging you to have a lemonade stand
1: she did so about a month later so january she had just turned four and we were coordinating our care between our amazing doctor in connecticut and dr maris hair in philadelphia and we would come we would travel every couple months but they were able to coordinate that for us so we were still living there and she talked about having a lemonade stand in january and it was connecticut in january so it's even colder than philadelphia and i told her you know when you feel better When it gets warmer, we had another younger son at the time. So we were really busy with the three three kids, the two boys and Alex. And she ended up um, talking about the lemonade stand for months. Every few weeks, she would ask about it. And then finally in June of 2000, so she's four and a half now, she said, we still haven't had my lemonade stand and it's hot out because my excuse had been it's not warm enough. So I said, what do you want to buy so badly? And she said, I'm not keeping the money, I'm giving it to my doctor, so they can help kids the way they help me, and that was really how it started.
0: So, you went and bought some lemonade.
1: We bought a le- we did not buy enough lemonade, <laughs> so um, I told her she would probably raise five or ten dollars, and she said, "I don't care, I'll do it anyways." I called my sister who has four children at the time and said, why don't you come by? She's having a lemonade stand. It'll be fun. And as we were hanging up, I said, oh, by the way, she's not keeping the money. She's giving it to her hospital. And she said, oh my goodness, are you kidding me? I said, no. Like, isn't that cute? Isn't that funny? And She said, I'm going to call the newspaper. And I said, I thought that was funny. I said, it's a lemonade stand. You're going to call the newspaper? I don't think they're going to care. And she said, oh, they're going to care. So she called the Hartford Current. And they did a little little preview article about the little girl with cancer having a lemonade stand to raise money. And people responded from day one. She raised two thousand dollars that day. So we my husband was on lemonade duty and he was running back literally running back and forth to the store getting lemonade all day long.
0: Wow. And so is that when you decided that this would be a regular thing or did you think it would be one and done?
1: We absolutely thought it would be one and done. So You know, it was, that day was um, so special. She, you know, here we thought it would mostly be family and some neighborhood friends who would come by. And they did. But there were strangers who came by. I don't know from how far away. With, some people were smiling. Some people were crying. There was a gentleman who came by, an older gentleman. He gave her a card and he just walked away. He had tears in his eyes. And the card said, your parents must be so proud. And it was signed anonymous and there was a $100 bill in it. Wow. And another gentleman came by, you know, all smiles with a big bucket of change. And he said, I've been saving this change for 17 years and I didn't know why. And I read that article this morning and now I know why. And it was amazing just to see how wonderful people are and it's like you know it but to see it that way and to see total strangers make such an effort to come out and support what she was doing really changed our lives and at the end of the day I said Alex you know what what did you think about the lemonade stand because she had been waiting so long to have it she said that was the best thing that ever happened to me and I knew then that um this wasn't cute no this meant something and this was important to her and I was I was embarrassed for myself that I was almost sort of mocking the fact that she thought this was going to be something special. But we did think that was it. It was $2,000 that she had done her part. Which is phenomenal. It's phenomenal. That would have been amazing in and of itself. But we ended up moving to Philadelphia, which, believe it or not, is not that unusual for a family like ours whose child has relapsed it needs options um, to relocate, to be closer to a facility that can provide them with those options just for that hope of of a longer life or potentially a cure. So we moved to Philadelphia. It was just too hard going back and forth. We also had more options if we were going to be here more often. And she brought her stand to Philly, which was not in our plan, but she, she thought it would make sense, I guess, to keep doing it every year.
0: So how soon until round two?
1: So the next year, when, you know, the next spring, it was now, what, 2002, I guess. Yeah, 2002. She um, started asking real early about having the stand because she did not want to wait until it was too cold. So she set up in our front yard in June of 2002. And that was the stand that really just went to another level, I guess you would say. It was amazing. Um, Similar to what happened in Connecticut, I told a friend at the time, she was more of an acquaintance, that I knew through karate class, you know, the moms sit there and chat with each other. And I told her, you should come by, you know, Alex is having a stand, she's done this before, and she was just blown away. And I say acquaintance at the time, because she's such a good friend to me through the years, but um, she called the Philadelphia Inquirer and they ran a full-page color ad in the old Philadelphia Inquirer section, the Sunday section, and two weeks before her stand. By the time she even opened her stand, she had raised $2,000. People were mailing money to her, dropping things off. And she set up in our front yard, you know, all in. By the end of the day, she had raised over $12,000 in our front yard. Wow. It in was one day. It, amazing, yeah. Um, And people just came from all around. And what happened was pre-social media, it went viral, if that makes sense. So not quite as viral as it went a couple of years later, but in the Philly area, all the news stations showed up. And then those little stories were getting picked up in other markets. So she started to get letters from all over the country uh, here and there from people donating. But the amazing thing that happened was Other kids heard what she did, their parents told them, their grandparents told them, and they decided to have a lemonade stand, and they sent the money to her as well. So they were inspired by her and thought, I can do that too, which I think was really the genius in in what she created, the idea that anybody, even a four-year-old, can be a part of curing this disease and that really impressed her. Those first letters from other kids who had lemonade stands.
0: Yeah, what did she say, or or how did she react when she they just, came through? You know,
1: she was um, she was kind of quiet in a lot of ways. She, I mean, she was stubborn, and when she wanted something, she made it clear. But you know, she had this graceful way of um, expressing her pleasure with things, and and she just had a big smile on her face. You know, like a genuine deep down smile when she read those letters. So this went on to 2002. she had that stand. Two thousand three she had a stand in our front yard in the pouring rain. It rained from the morning until we went to bed at night, not a little. It poured all day. She raised eighteen thousand dollars. People came and stayed. They just stood there with umbrellas. Then um, some of the national news shows showed up, you know, in her front yard that morning to cover this story. And she was sick at that point. So she had had a few good years on experimental treatments that got her down to like minimal disease, but they had stopped working. So now she was having a lot of problems from the cancer that was encroaching in, in different parts of her body. And she insisted on being treated. She really believed in it, but she was she was pretty sick. And that was really the beginning of, of her um, physical deterioration of that stand in 2003. But anyways, in the meantime, you know, this thing is taking off. There's, she's getting requests for interviews and, um, it's becoming more of a national story. So by the end of 2003, she had raised over a hundred thousand dollars through the years with people helping and contributing, but she was really, really sick. And, um, by the beginning of 2004, she was turning eight in January and we, we knew that this would be her last birthday, um, we weren't talking about the lemonade stand because she always had her stand in June. And June was a long way off with how sick she was. But she got on the phone with a reporter and I was kind of listening in the other room because she didn't really like me listening. She didn't really like being interviewed. So she she was kind of shy about it. But she got on the phone and I heard her say, well, so far I've raised over $100,000. So this year I'm gonna raise a million dollars. And I couldn't believe it. And you'd think I would have been excited or proud, but I remember feeling sad because I didn't think she was going to raise a million dollars. And I didn't want her to die feeling like that was a failure because she had already done so much. She had raised over $100,000 and it was the best thing that ever happened to her, she said. And I thought, now she's going to think that this wasn't a success because she didn't raise a million dollars. So we said, Alex, how are you going to raise a million dollars? And she said, if everybody has lemonade stands, I think we can do it. So who can argue with that?
0: Wow. That's incredible that somebody so young can both dream big, but also be practical about it. You know, She yeah. says, this is, this is the girl that was disappointed at a $700 lemonade stand, so but true. still says, no, we just need to, you know, Come together. Get it together in small chunks and, and we'll get there.
1: And she even, you know, my husband sat down with her and said, you know, let's, you know, he was really all in. Like, we we're got to help her do this. I was all in, but I should mention we had another child at this point. So I had a baby, an infant, a five-year-old and a nine-year-old and Alex, a very sick child. So I thought, yeah, I want this to happen. But I kind of felt like I've got nothing left to give, right? I, I'm, not, I'm not capable of making this happen. But my husband really dug in with her and said, how are we going to do this? And she said, well, if we have lemonade stands on the same day as my stand, if we have lemonade stands in every state, I think we can do it. This was, that was, Alex said that. Yeah, that was, so <laughs> he worked with his college roommate to get a website set up. And um, we had become part of the Philadelphia Foundation at that point. So they could handle the money and the receding and all that stuff. It was a phenomenal partnership. They were really, really great to her. And um, anyway, so she... So he set this idea up with her and people could sign up and say, Hey, I'll have a stand. And we got the word out again, no social media. I'm not even sure how we got the word out to our friends and family email, I suppose, word of mouth, um, traditional news outlets. And the crazy thing that happened was that, that interview that she did with that reporter where she said, I want to raise a million dollars. That was a long lead magazine that didn't even come out till after she died. Somehow that goal spread. We are not sure how. It's not like we were doing PR for this. And she started getting calls and requests for interviews. She ended up that year on the Today Show, the Oprah Show. The Associated Press did a huge article that went into hundreds of magazines, uh, newspapers, and all over the world. So people were learning about this and deciding they wanted to be a part of it.
0: What was it like when you got the call requesting that she would be on Oprah?
1: (laughs) (laughs) It was... um, It was... It was typical Alex because she was in the hospital. She was very sick at this point. Now, she was being treated, but it wasn't really helping. And she was having so many problems. I mean, it was in her lungs. It was in her liver. There was a tumor um, closing off her esophagus. She had no platelets. So she was a really sick kid. She was in the hospital. I don't even remember with what the problem was at the time. And uh, my husband got the call on his cell phone. Don't know how they got our number still don't know how all this happened. And, you know, asked about her coming on, but we needed to be there Wednesday. This was Monday. And he said, no, she, you know, she can't do that. Hangs up the phone. She says, who was that? And he said, Oh, it was a reporter, you know, wanting to do a story. And because she didn't like being interviewed, he figured that that would satisfy her. And she said, but who was it? And he said, what was the Oprah show? And she said, are you crazy? Do you have any idea how many people watch that show? Um, so she wanted to go and, you know, we kind of negotiated and said, "We well, you know what, if Dr. Maris says you can go, you can go. So he came in and I was there too at this point. And she talked to him and he said, hey, if you want to go to Chicago, Alex, you need to go to Chicago. So we got her, you know, tanked up with all her blood products, got the name of a doctor there in case something happened, headed off to Chicago and she was on the Oprah show. Wow. She was very savvy. I have no idea. I don't even think I had watched the Oprah show right. with her but she knew that this was important. And she would say that at other times, you know, she was very sick when she went on the today show Very, but the sickest she had been. And we really, I, I thought as a parent, I should not be letting her do this. It just didn't feel like the right thing to do because she was so sick even to travel to New York, but she said, this is important. Wow.
0: So, yeah, I mean, that, that video, those videos are still on the internet today. And when you watch the interview of her on the Today Show, it's very clear that she is struggling to say a single word. Yet, it was her that insisted on being there?
1: Oh, yes. She insisted on being there. And in fact, she was having a terrible time with her, with talking because of the tumor. And she had had radiation to stop it because um, obviously, you know, Having your windpipe close is it's not something anybody would want um, for their child, even if she was going to pass anyway. So she was having a lot of pain and she really couldn't speak. And she hadn't really talked all morning to the point where when we went to the Today Show, we said to them, listen, she's not doing well. I don't know if she can even talk and do this interview. So the interviewer went over to her at that point and said, you know, had a conversation and came back shaking his head. And I said, what's going on? He said, Oh, she's, she's going on. (laughs) She's going on the show. She insisted. She had this determination that she was going to let people know that they could help.
0: Do you know what she said to the
1: interviewer? Yes, but we didn't know at the time. So, you know, we were outside on the plaza and what happens is you've got a A microphone, the whole family was there except for the baby, except for little Joey getting interviewed. Um, And we all had an earpiece in. So we could hear it was Matt Lauer doing the interview. We could hear him talking. We couldn't hear what she was saying. And she was sitting first. So we had no idea what she said. But we knew it was something profound because of the reaction of everybody and his reaction. And I had so many emails and, you know, people saying, you have to watch the interview. And I got to tell you, when I watched it, um, I still have a hard time watching it. It was really, it was a really tough interview to watch because she was so sick and so determined at the same time. And so he, there were two things. He said, how are you going to raise a million dollars? And she said, well, if everybody has lemonade stands, I think we can do it. You know, struggling to speak. And that became, you know, an even bigger call to action. But then he said, will you do me a favor? Will you come back next year and show me the million dollar check? And she shrugged and looked down and said, hopefully. But I knew when I watched it that um, she knew she was going to raise a million dollars, but she also knew she wasn't going to be there to come back. And in fact, he apologized to us after and said, as soon as I asked that question... I knew I shouldn't have asked it, um, but it was, yeah, it was, it was really tough. It's really tough for me to talk about it still, yeah. to think of what her state of mind was at that point. She did not want to talk about her future. She did not want to talk about what was happening to her. She made that clear, but then for her to say that, you know, in that moment was, um, was, it was pretty intense.
0: So at that point, that interview airs nationally. Did you then think that, She'd reach a million dollars?
1: At this point, so the crazy thing was, so the Oprah show was taped in, like, say, the beginning of May. We were told it would air in the next five or six weeks or something. And then the Associated Press interviewed her, maybe I want to say, like, the end of May, beginning of June. In the meantime, we got a call from the Today Show, you know, Friday to be on on Monday or something like that. All three of these things ended up hitting the same day. It was like, if we were a PR firm, it would have been perfectly orchestrated, <laughs> wow. but we weren't. The Oprah show happened to air the same day the Today Show was live and the Associated Press article hit.
0: And this was sheer coincidence. Co- there sheer was no coincidence.
1: So things, no, wow. no coordination. Things exploded. I mean, they had already had momentum, but it, we couldn't, our home phone was ringing so much that by the time you would hang up, the voicemail would be full. I mean, it was crazy. So, um In the meantime, my husband had organized with volunteers from our school to pack boxes. And like, if everybody's going to be a part of this, let's send them a little box of with bandanas and some posters and things that they can use for their stand. And um, so that was all happening. and, And that was like amazing to see how it was all coming together. But at the same time, she was very, very sick. And it was a, it was a really, it was a really hard time. It was a really hard time.
0: So the momentum builds people start having lemonade stands did she reach a million dollars
1: so she had her last stand in june and there were stands all over the country we still have that event that she created it's called lemonade days and um by the middle of july she had raised about eight hundred thousand dollars that had we had received which was amazing how fast that happened and we didn't I don't even think we had online giving at that point. So it was really all people sending, sending it through the mail from their lemonade stands and and just donating. Um, Crazy, incredible thing that happened was um, Volvo cars had been a supporter of hers in the front yard. She had been nominated for an award and they fell in love with her story. They fell in love with her and just followed along. And we got a call from Volvo in the middle of July, someone representing the company asking how she was doing. And I said, you know, she's not doing well. And they said, how is she doing towards her goal? And I said, she's going to reach it. We knew she was going to reach it at this point, but she's not going to be here to see it, I don't think. And she said, you tell her that she's reached it. You tell her that we're taking
0: her over. Wow. And what a... What went through your mind when you heard those words?
1: I couldn't believe it. I mean, that was over $200,000. So I, she was there. Alex was home. So I got off the phone and I told her. And, you know, typical of Alex being um, you know very gracious and humble, she had a huge smile and like clapped her hands once and kind of laid back down inside. And she also said, I believe my son Patrick asked her what her goal was now. And she said, oh, like a bazillion dollars or something. <laughs> But you could tell she was really happy. She was happy that the, the goal had been met. Um, she died 10 days later. So I mean, it was really, it was clear afterwards that she was really holding on. So I'm, I'm so grateful for that gift of, of everybody who helped her reach that goal because uh, knowing her, she would have held on a lot longer <laughs> to, until her goal was met because that, that's the kind of person she was. And as much as we wanted her to hold on, it was so hard for her at that point that you really just want, you want every second and you want her to be there forever. But knowing that wasn't possible, I I just wanted her to not be suffering anymore.
0: Coming up, Liz tells us how hard it was for her and Jay to decide what to do next after Alex passed away. She'll tell us what Alex's Lemonade Stand does today, which is a lot And we'll also talk a little bit about how Philly has helped along the way. Stay tuned. Welcome back to Philly Who. I'm your host, Kevin Schmidlin. And we just heard from Liz Scott the story of her daughter, Alex, who was diagnosed with cancer before she even turned one. But shortly after turning eight, she had raised over a million dollars. I still can't get over that, an eight-year-old. A million dollars to fight childhood cancer. Alex would pass away just a few days after reaching her goal of a million dollars. But since then, Alex's Lemonade Sand Foundation has raised over 150 times that. So it's clear that Alex's legacy will live on forever. But the thing is, right after Alex's passing, when Jay and Liz had to decide whether or not to continue her efforts, they weren't really sure if they should.
1: At the point where she died and she had reached her million dollar goal. We, I, I would guess looking back on it, first of all, it probably wasn't top of my mind, but I think we thought the lemonade stand would go away naturally. I mean, she was the face. She was the driver of it. It wasn't our stand to continue at that point in my mind. But thankfully, because of the amazing generosity of the people of this world, um, who continued to send letters and send emails, saying things like, "We're going to keep doing this every year. We're going to continue what Alex started." You know, Alex's life showed us that we can make a difference for this disease." I think what got me the most was emails from other parents of children with cancer, saying, "We are so grateful to Alex to for giving the opportunity. To change this for our kids, and I could just think of Alex saying, "You know that is so selfish." Because at that point, we had thought about maybe continuing it, but I just thought it would be too hard. It would be too hard without her. I didn't know if we could do it without her. There were just so many doubts, and and we were grieving, and we had the three other boys that needed us. Um, but those families really got to me, and I thought of Alex saying, "You know that is so selfish." You know everything she did in her life to bring attention to this and to raise a million dollars and to get that momentum going for us to turn our backs and say, this is too hard. You know, we, we can't do this. Seemed like it would, it wouldn't be fair to her, but it wouldn't be fair to the other kids just like her, you know, who, who maybe would have a chance to to be cured that she didn't have. So we decided just to go for it and start the foundation and, and see what we could do. We really didn't know what we could do, but we thought we would certainly give it a try.
0: So at that point, you decided to give it a try to continue her efforts. Did you think that it would become as big as it is today?
1: <laughs> we absolutely did not. We didn't think... I think the question was more, would it become as big as it was when Alex was alive, right? In terms of the ability to mobilize people. So would it stay the size? Would it stay the that size it that right. it was? Never mind grow. I That was the big question in my mind. And I was... I would have been okay with it not staying the size personally in terms of, of course, because I'm not Alex, right? This was her thing and she was such a inspiration and driving force behind it. But as a mom living through the loss of a child to cancer, I felt like we had to do something, right? So that drive to make a change was stronger than ever. So the idea of failing those other families really, really bothered me and it really drove us to push and push and push and do everything we could to grow it and to make sure that what she did was just the beginning and that we were going to keep it going and, until the end, meaning until there was a cure.
0: Right. So what made you decide to stay in Philadelphia?
1: I don't think we ever had a doubt. Um, well, first of all, you know, our, our kids had kind of grown up here at that point point our oldest was 10 and had been in school for several years here. And we have like, amazing friends and family in Connecticut. But at the same time, you know, Alex loved the city. We love the city. And and honestly, the Philadelphia just took our family in, took Alex and took her cause in. And we felt like you know, we belong here. This is, this is our home and um, that there's no other place like it for us.
0: Yeah. So it's been now, she passed away in 2004.
1: She passed away in 2004. Yeah. And it
0: has been 14 years.
1: Yes, it has.
0: Uh, of, of the foundation. So it's grown a lot. How much money so far to date has this cause raised?
1: We are over $150 million raised. Wow.
0: <laughs> $150 million, 150 times Alex's original goal, which in itself was almost absurd.
1: <laughs> it was absurd to me. And $150 million is absurd to me, but it's, it's done. It's, yeah. it's happened. So we're lucky for that.
0: So throughout this time, Alex, through her efforts, has raised a million dollars. Up until that point, where was that money going? Was it one doctor, one hospital?
1: Until 2002 or so. I don't remember the exact year. I would say she was about six years old. We were giving it, we first gave it to her hospital in Connecticut when we had the stand in Connecticut, Connecticut Children's Medical Center. And then once we moved to Philly, we were giving it all to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia for neuroblastoma research. And when she was about six years old, we she would get letters from all over It was crazy. Like she would get letters that would say the lemonade girl, Pennsylvania, and they would show up at our house. <laughs> so we would get these checks. And one day we had a few checks in the mail and we were opening them. And she said, you know, what are we doing with all this money? And I said, Alex, you know what we're doing with the money? And she said, no, I mean, what are we doing with it? I said, we're giving it to the hospital. And she again, was pushing, like, what are they doing with it? And I was really pleased to tell her they're using it for neuroblastoma research at the children's hospital, at your hospital. And she started shaking her head and I said, what is the matter? She said, that is so selfish. And even then I was about to say, I don't care because in my mind, maybe there was a way we were gonna find a cure for her. And she said, before I could get the words out, all kids want their tumors to go away. That's what she called her cancer. So she said, all kids want their tumors to go away. We should be giving money to all different hospitals for all kinds of kids' cancer. And I remember just, um, I had this lump in my throat because I knew she was right. And I also knew that it wasn't about her. It wasn't about curing her. It was about really helping other kids and giving them the chance that she would never have. Um, so that was another big moment, because it set the vision, quite honestly, for the foundation today. And so right then, the last couple of years of her life, when she was raising all this money, we were giving it to the Children's Hospital of Philadelphia, but we were also giving it to other hospitals. We started contacting researchers. We were particularly interested, and Alex was in some of those calls and in some of the meetings, in what they couldn't get funded, right? So like, what's the problem? We've been doing this for years and we see kids go on waiting lists for trials and and they said, you know, we have the kids, as you know, um, and sometimes we even have the drugs, but the process of getting through the clinical trials is really cumbersome. So that's an example of a gap that we started filling infrastructure to run clinical trials, which had never occurred to me. No one's paying for these. No one is paying for that. So um so we started asking those questions, and we've continued through the years, thanks to her vision and saying, like, no, you know, this is for all kids, all hospitals. What can't you get funded? What are the gaps? What's stopping you from moving forward and moving forward quickly with your research? And that's how we've developed the grant program from her simple statement that all kids want their tumors to go away. Six-year-old
0: to to uh, to have such a profound perspective, to be able to recognize a cause that is greater than oneself at six years old and to be in meetings deciding <laughs> what's getting funded. That's just absolutely remarkable. So I think one thing that really strikes me about Alex's Lemonade Send Foundation or ALSF uh, is that not only does it go to fund, you know, specific, you know, cures, research, you know, the, the scientific research, that kind of thing, but it also focuses a lot on the whole experience of pediatric cancer. So you know, what the families go through, uh, traveling to get care. The siblings you mentioned before, I think I heard you in an interview once say that it had been discovered that the siblings have larger negative psychological effects long-term than the actual survivors of childhood cancer. So how have you and Jay been able to identify those gaps
1: So, yeah, so research is our primary function, as you said. And we fund everything from early science all the way through to first in children clinical trials. And what's interesting was when we first started, especially right after Alex died, I didn't want to hear about possibly funding anything if it wasn't something that was research that was going to lead to a cure. And then over the years, what we realized was... um, First of all, the first family services program we created was the Travel for Care program. And that was, I think, in 2007 or 2008. And what happened was a researcher came to us and said, this is great. You guys are increasing the number of clinical trials. But I have to tell you, I have a lot of families who can't get here for the clinical trials. So there's 21, maybe 22 centers that can do phase one, phase two clinical trials in the country. And getting to those centers for a lot of the families means they have to travel. If they're not flying, they're driving like we did hundreds of miles potentially. And not everybody can afford that. I mean, we could barely afford it, but we had credit. Not every family has credit. So that broke my heart because I thought we're creating a system that will allow families who have the means to get there to have a chance for their children to survive. So we started the travel for care program and that program has grown, still growing. Um, Compared to what we spend on research, it's a relatively small part of our budget. We'll we'll probably spend about half a million dollars this year on travel for families. The impact it has, we're able to help hundreds and hundreds of families through gas cards, airfare, sometimes a hotel if there's no Ron McDonald house available. And It is a difference maker for those families. Um, The average family that we assist with that program last year had an income of $30,000 for the family. And then you throw a childhood cancer diagnosis on top of that, which is financially devastating anyways. And you have a real financial crisis for the family. So the thought that they have to drive 60 miles each way back and forth to the hospital is literally not doable sometimes. So we don't even provide... Um, a reimbursement program. We pay upfront. They get a gas card that they can replenish with us. We will book the airfare for them. We will call the hotel and put a credit card down for them. And it has allowed families to have access to treatments that literally would have been out of reach for them. Incredible. It is. And, you know, you think we would have seen that as parents who did that ourselves, but it took a researcher coming to us and saying... He actually, his thought was, is it okay if I use some of my grant to help these families? And of course, we said yes. But it got us thinking that we need to do something bigger beyond that one institution. Yeah. Yeah. What
0: good is the cure if nobody can get to it?
1: Exactly. Exactly. Mm -hmm. And then our sibling program, that actually, um, we're very grateful that it came to us from another mom. She had started Super Sibs because her son, she had two sons. One had cancer and one didn't. The one who didn't have cancer was really struggling. And she could find literally no resources to support him. And she started this organization dedicated to siblings of children with cancer. And she grew it and she did a beautiful job with it for many, many years. And she was at a point in her life where she needed to make a move for personal reasons. And she wanted to make sure the program continued. So she came to us and said, would you guys think about taking this over? And even though it, you know, at first look, you think, well, they're supposed to be curing cancer. What does it have to do with siblings? We never want that sort of, to be boxed in because honestly it's the right thing to do it's a gap right and if, if that program went away nobody would be supporting siblings of children with cancer and the more we learned about the detrimental effects that cancer diagnosis can have on siblings the more we knew we had to we had to take on this program and it, it's it's pretty straightforward the siblings get referred usually or hopefully at you know pretty close to when their sibling is diagnosed and then for two years we send them mailings every couple months. Um, age-appropriate, words of encouragement, words of empowerment, and coping. So um, letting them know that whatever they're feeling, it's okay. Teaching them ways to express their feelings. And really importantly, the parents get information about what the siblings are going through, even if they look okay. Because most of the time, they're going to tell you, I'm fine, I'm fine, I'm fine. But inside, there's a lot going on there, understandably.
0: So... Through all these years of growing the foundation, how has Philadelphia proper played a role in its growth?
1: I've, I've thought about that before because, you know, we always, I always say that like there was this like Alex magic, right? And, and sometimes I still feel like it's working. Yeah. But I do often think that that magic wouldn't have happened to the extent it did, if we weren't in Philadelphia, just the the community and the just the generosity and and the way that they embraced her story can continue to is um, is pretty amazing. Yeah. And um, I'm not sure it could have happened somewhere else to the extent it did. I mean, there were so many things. So the community embraced her story, and it's a philanthropic community on top of that. And then the the media. Embraced her story, and let's face it, Philadelphia is a major media market. So it got picked up in other markets, and it just snowballed from there. So I I think it was, I think it was a huge factor in what has happened, Mm. and and Philadelphia is still a huge part of of what we do. We have so many events here, and so many of our supporters are in this area.
0: So how Philadelphia has gone through a lot of change in the past seventeen years. How have you seen it changed from your perspective?
1: I, I feel like it's changed. It hasn't changed that much for me. Okay. I feel like the people have always been great people. And I think, I don't think that was different in 2001. Yeah. But... I certainly think it's become maybe cooler. There's like more restaurants and and that sort of thing. But in general, I I think it's the people that make the city. And and I think the people have been incredible since the day we moved here.
0: Yeah. It doesn't take trendy rooftop bars to to have a great community, right?
1: (laughs) Yes, you're right. That's exactly right. So to me, that's, that's the same, that that's stayed the same. It hasn't changed. The heart of the city hasn't changed.
0: Uh, if you were to send a message today to yourself while going you know, through the ups and downs of Alex's time, would you?
1: Oh, I have never been asked that before. Um, I think I would.
0: And what would you say?
1: I would say you can do it. You can get through it. Because, you know, knowing what was coming, knowing that she probably wasn't going to survive was terrifying. And I didn't, I was worried that I wouldn't, I mean, I still worry about it, that I wouldn't be able to be the mom I needed to be. I wouldn't be able to be the person I needed to be to get her through that and to get my family, to get my other children through it. And I was, I was terrified of, the idea that I even had to go through that. Um, I didn't think I could do it and I did it. Did I do the best job I could do? I don't know. I did what I thought was the best I could do at the time, but I would tell myself that you'll get through it. And then myself would probably tell me to shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Right.
0: Right. (laughs) So if you, so, for all your podcast listeners out there, I'm totally stealing this question from Tim Ferriss. Just going to give credit where it's due. If you had the opportunity, if you were given a billboard that all Philadelphians would see, what would
1: you put on it? Thank you. That's easy. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Yes, that's there's we we feel lucky. You know, despite everything, we feel like. We've been blessed in so many ways. And I think Philadelphia is right up there with the reasons why we have been. Absolutely.
0: For those listening to the podcast who may not already be involved with Alex's lemonade stand, who want to be involved, what would you tell them to do?
1: We have so many ways to be involved now. So we have lemonade stands, but we have, a, so, especially in Philly, we have events all throughout the year. Um, I would recommend they go to our website okay. because in our get involved page, there's so many ways we're always looking for volunteers. We're always looking for donors. We really like people to engage, whether it's with your family doing eliminates, getting involved, you know, businesses are the backbone of what we do here. It's so almost half our revenue comes from our business partners and supporters. So, um, there's, there's so many ways to get involved.